1 John chapter 2, verse 18 to 29. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. G'day everyone, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great to be uh, having you with us wherever you're joining us from. Today we're continuing in our series in 1 John, Love Made Known. And the book of 1 John is a book all about Jesus. Now that may, that may sound really obvious, but it's something that we need to keep at the forefront of our thinking. The book of 1 John begins by highlighting that John, as one of the apostles, had a unique relationship with Jesus. What we'll read in his letter is not his pondering or philosophizing. It comes from his interaction with the real flesh and blood Jesus. And so all of the implications that he's going to discuss also flow from knowing the true Jesus. Fellowship with God and with fellow Christians is possible only if we know the true Jesus. If we are in fellowship with God through the true Jesus, it will be seen in our love for fellow Christians. If we know and love the true Jesus, then it means that we will not love the world. In today's passage, John refers to the last hour, the Antichrist, the our anointing and remaining in Jesus. And again, understanding all of these things will depend on our knowing the true Jesus. We obviously need God's help to understand and respond rightly to his word. So will you join with me in asking God for his help to work in us now? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. In the book of John, we hear that you are light. Later on, we're going to read that you are love. 
and you've revealed yourself to us in your son, Jesus. As we spend some time now uh, reflecting on him, we pray that you'd give us insights into what your word is saying. And even more than that, by your spirit, you'd work in us so that we actually respond to your word the right way, that we live out the things that we learn today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people believe that new is better. If you're going to buy a house, a car, a new computer, many argue that having the latest means having the best. A new house won't have all the maintenance problems that an old house will. A new car has a warranty and, and none of the problems that result from how the previous owner did or didn't look after their car. The newest computer will work faster and last longer than previous models. And in my experience, there is truth in this claim. I still remember the very first laptop that I ever bought when Christy and I were at Bible college. It weighed a ton. It took ages to boot up. And it often shut down without any warning, losing more assignments than I care to remember. 20 years ago, that laptop cost me a small fortune, even though it was third hand. 20 years ago, laptops were good in theory, but it took advances in technology to make them faster and lighter and more reliable. Manufacturers learn from the earlier versions of all sorts of products and continually adapt them to make them better. If money wasn't an issue, my guess is that most, if not all of us, would pick the latest. New is better. New is better, but I think that most people would also agree that new isn't always better. As we get older, we reminisce about the good old days. Jesus himself said in Luke 5.39 that no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. And the short lifespan of many modern products raises the question if things have really gotten better. But what are we to make of new ideas when it comes to opinions and beliefs? Often the latest thinking is clearly a reaction against old wrongs. We acknowledge the faults and we change in order to improve. Racist and sexist thinking of the past have been seen for what they were. And new, modern expectations are seen as progress. Unfortunately, this does sometimes lead to an arrogant condemnation of the past. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, the assumption that just because it's new, it's better. Maybe the older we are, the more likely we are to feel that the pendulum has swung too far. But when is holding to the past simply being an old fuddy-duddy? And when is the opposite true? When is the new a downgrade? When do updates actually backfire and make things worse? You see, in John's time, there was a new understanding about Jesus. A mere 50 years had passed since Jesus had risen and ascended to the Father and already people were claiming that there was a new and better way to understand Jesus. Were they right? 
to be see weaknesses and deficiencies in the old way of understanding Jesus? Had problems been noticed that required urgent updates? Or should the Christians be rejecting this suggestion that new is better? John warns in this section that any new understanding of Jesus is a disastrous downgrade. A new understanding of Jesus, in verses 18 to 19, means that you have forsaken fellowship. A new understanding of Jesus, in verses 20 to 23, eliminates the possibility of access to God the Father. And then in verses 24 to 29, remaining in the true Jesus is the only way to eternal life. So if you've got your Bibles there, keep them open in chapter 2, and let's look together at what John has to say. In my Bible, the section we've just heard is titled, Warning Against Antichrist. Now, John didn't give it that title, and for some it won't mean very much. But for others... John's writing of the Antichrist and the last hour in verse 18 will immediately raise thoughts of the millennium, the mark of the beast, and the second coming of Jesus. And there is a connection. This week's home group study refers to other verses where similar terms and concepts are used. But we need to recognise that 1 and 2 John are actually the only place in the whole Bible where the word Antichrist actually appears. We also need to remind ourselves that that John wrote this in the first century, coming up on 2,000 years ago, and he could say way back then that they were already in the last hour. 1 John is not a prophecy of what is to come. It's an explanation of what had already taken place. The evidence that they were already in the last hour back then, verse 18, was that Antichrist had come. This is one of those cases where translation into English makes it harder to see something that was much more obvious in the original language. It's very important to know that Christ is not Jesus' surname, it's a title meaning anointed one. In the Old Testament, the prophets, priests and kings were anointed ones. They literally had oil poured over their heads to signify that they were set apart for a special role, that that God's spirit was empowering them to do a a special role. The word anti means against or in place of. And so anti-Christ literally means against the anointed one or in place of the anointed one. John had evidently previously warned that someone was coming who would seek to oppose Christ or take Christ's place. But what is most surprising is where the opposition comes from. Have a look again at verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us. But they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. I think that many of us hear the term Antichrist and think of an extremely evil person raging against Christianity from the outside. A vocal critic, a persecutor, someone like a Hitler who kills anyone who disagrees with him. But according to John, 
our biggest danger comes from those who seem to be on our side and only over time reveal that they serve a different master. They look like one of us, but they're not. Which shouldn't really come as a surprise to us. Many war and spy stories show the greater risk that a double agent poses. Because they have gained our trust, they've got on the inside, the devastation that they cause has so much more impact. Which means that the biggest, uh, the biggest threat that Christians face is not from the prominent atheists who make fun of Christianity in print or in online debates. It's not the evil governments that hunt down Christians. The biggest danger that you face is from someone standing behind a pulpit. The most dangerous book to your faith is likely to be bought from Kurong. The most insidious blog or YouTube channel that will trigger doubts about Jesus, that will urge you along wrong paths, is almost certainly going to be by someone claiming to be a Christian. Counterfeits are much more dangerous than obvious alternatives. John's warning is that if someone claims to be a Christian and yet is promoting a new understanding of who Jesus is or what he did, then we need to realise that that person is not in fellowship with God or with other Christians. Fellowship, this close relationship, a a unity of purpose, a, a being intertwined with God and with others, isn't deepened by a new take on Jesus. It is completely destroyed. So when it comes to Jesus, new is not better. What has been called the ecumenical movement has attempted to unite various denominations and sometimes even different religions. They emphasise the things that we have in common. On the outside, it may appear to be a very noble goal, and I do agree that there is value in uniting with people who are different from us. But John's test to determine who we are united with is, what do they teach about Jesus? And so, as Rod pointed out in the first week, the Jehovah's Witnesses' suggestion that Jesus is a God, just not equal with the Father, is a deal-breaker. It's a different Jesus that they teach, and so they are not Christians. It also clarifies that the Dalai Lama's take on Jesus is also wrong. Our society's presumption that they can pick and choose which bits of Jesus' teaching they'll accept or reject is not the way to be in fellowship with God. If Jesus is altered in any way, everything that flows from that will be altered too. A new understanding of Jesus means that you've forsaken fellowship. You are not in right relationship with God or with others. When we first hear the accusation, forsaking fellowship may not sound like such a big deal. But when we understand what is truly lost, we should appreciate the significance of what is at risk. And so John goes on to describe how a new understanding of Jesus removes any possibility of access to God the Father. Our point two, a new understanding of Jesus removes access to God the Father. Now, whether they were official leaders in the church or not, we don't know. 
But these antichrists, these anti-anointed ones, exerted a great deal of influence. Their new teaching was almost certainly persuasive because it matched what was the accepted wisdom at the time. And I think the same thing happens today. If someone has lots of letters after their name, if they have published lots of best-selling books or have thousands of followers, whatever it is that they are teaching seems to be working. And this can make us wonder if maybe we're missing out on something. But John responds that you are not the ones missing out. You already have everything you need in Jesus. So rather than accepting the anti-anointed's new spin on Jesus, remember verse 20, that you are anointed. A reference that chapter 3 verse 24, verse 24 clarifies is the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit within Christians enables us to know the truth. The false teachers were claiming to have a new and improved understanding of Jesus. But John warns his beloved Christians that any changes are not improvements. They are a disastrous downgrade. In the movie Bean, Mr Bean, played by Rowan Atkinson in his typical bumbling fashion, spills ink on the very famous painting Whistler's Mother. Mortified, he tries to remove his update by wiping her face with thinners. It does remove the ink, but it also removes all of the paint. And in an attempt to cover up what he has done, he redraws Whistler's mother's face. Now, the result you can see is obviously a disaster. And in a similar but far more serious sense, John is saying that Jesus cannot be improved upon. God had already given them the truth, and the truth hasn't changed. Let's read verses 22 and 23 again. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Now in the coming weeks we'll read some of the details of what the false teachers were denying. But clearly their fault, the fault in their teaching was that they were presenting a different Jesus. Verse 23 calls it denying the Son. I think that the pre-conversion Saul is a classic example of denying the Son. Before meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, refused to accept that Jesus was God's anointed one. Saul insisted that the way to God was being a Jew and obedience to the law, Torah. But by refusing to recognise Jesus as the anointed one, rejecting Jesus as the only way to the Father, Saul cut off any possibility of being in relationship with God. You simply can't have God apart from Jesus. This week I was trying to open an old document on my computer that I had secured some time ago with a password. And I couldn't remember for the life of me what the password was. Until I did remember it, Precisely as it had been entered, the document remained unreadable. No matter how many times I tried, no matter how, I'm sure this is a password, it did not work. 
And in a similar way, Jesus is the only password that opens up the way to the Father. And so this begins to clarify what it means to deny the Son. Saul never denied that Jesus existed. He probably didn't deny that Jesus had taught some helpful things and and had done some impressive miracles. But pre-conversion Saul refused to accept that Jesus was God come as a man. Saul refused to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection were necessary as the means by which Saul must be saved. Saul insisted that he could do it on his own. And so to deny the Son is to reject any part of who Jesus is or what he has done. Denying is not necessarily being a vocal opponent or a persecutor. Denying can be as passive as just assuming that you're already okay on your own. Now, in John's day, popular belief was that spirits are pure while flesh or humanity is by nature contaminated. As a result, spirit and flesh couldn't coexist. They were like oil and water that just didn't mix. And so the new take on Jesus was that he only appeared to be human. In reality, he was only divine. John insists that this so-called better explanation was actually a disastrous downgrade. Jesus is able to save us only because he is at the same time both fully God and fully man, two natures in one person. Any shift from that wasn't progress. It was to move away from the only thing that can save Now, in our time, thinking has changed. The nature of Jesus that is commonly rejected has changed. The stumbling block is no longer that Jesus was a man, but a refusal to accept the possibility that Jesus is God. Many are happy to accept that Jesus was a a good example, an inspiration, a special person that we can all learn something from. Secular historians will happily concede that a Jew named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine and was killed by crucifixion. Just don't start talking about Jesus existing forever, having all knowledge and all power. Don't talk about a dead man rising to life again. If we do, they criticise, we've stepped into the realms of make-believe. Updating Jesus so that he fits in with our society's perception of what is possible is inherently dangerous. It is a guaranteed disastrous downgrade. John's response is still the required response. We need to acknowledge the Son. Acknowledging the Son means accepting that Jesus is God who took on humanity, trusting that his death and resurrection alone are the full payment for our sin. It's a belief criticised by many as so old school, so traditional, so out of date. When we lived in Thailand, one of my students tried to convince me that what is called liberal theology is a better way to understand the Bible. As people of the 21st century, he insisted that we now know that demon possession is actually just mental health issues. Miracles can't really happen. They're just parables to teach a moral. 
The very idea of sacrificing Jesus is divine child abuse and so barbaric that we must reject it as primitive nonsense. Liberal theologians modified Jesus and all of his teachings to match what the world considers to be acceptable. It is seen in the books of John Shelby Spong, Stephen Chalk, Marcus Borg and other best-selling authors who teach self-help dressed up in religious language. It's seen when new definitions of gender are taught to be consistent with the Bible. All such cutting-edge thinking is shown in 1 John to be an ancient mistake. Trying to update Jesus changes what was already perfect and destroys his value completely. In the final section, John describes the alternative, staying put. Four times in five verses, he uses the words, remain in. His point, our third point, is that remaining in the true Jesus is the only way to eternal life. These alterations to Jesus, which were supposed to be improvements, didn't make him better. They drained him of any power. Only remaining true to the apostolic testimony about Jesus are we promised eternal life. It's like being given accurate directions to somewhere that you have never been. If someone comes along and then changes those directions, the result will be that we don't get to the destination that we want to go to. And that is exactly what happens when we make changes to Jesus. If we reject the truth that Jesus is the eternal, perfect and pure God, that he took on humanity, that he lived a perfect life and then died in our place, that he rose again, if we reject those things, we can never have fellowship with God. We mustn't move from what we received. Verse 24 calls it remaining in the Son and in the Father. Verse 25 calls it eternal life. This is not simply living forever. While it will have no end, what is being promised is restoration to unhindered relationship with the triune God who has been in perfect relationship for eternity. Not pie in the sky when you die. This is relationship now that continues on into eternity. And verses 26 and 27 remind us of the danger and give us a reassurance. We need to remain on guard because there is an active attempt to divert us from what is true. My interaction with JWs and Mormons, with Buddhists and Muslims, even with many liberal theologians on the whole, have been extremely positive, good conversations. They sincerely believe that what they are teaching they, they wholeheartedly believe that if I accept what they are saying, it will be a benefit to me. But they are sincerely wrong. And they're sincerely wrong because they've been deceived. Behind the lies is not merely misunderstanding or faulty conclusions. People are intentionally attempting to lead us astray. It has always been Satan's technique to, to twist the truth. Tweak it ever so slightly so that it still sounds okay. But he knows that if we accept a modified Jesus, he's no Jesus at all. 
The Holy Spirit within us, verse 27, assures us that we don't need to go searching for something else to complete us. In Jesus, we already have everything we need. So don't fall for a counterfeit. When we lived in Thailand, we often took guests to the Chiang Mai uh, night market. It's famous as a place where you can buy all sorts of souvenirs, clothing, watches, DVDs. And it doesn't take a genius to realise that when you're offered a genuine Rolex for 10 bucks, it's not the real thing. You go to the night market with your eyes open. The problem for us is that Satan is far more subtle than that. Too often we walk through life blissfully unaware of forgeries. And in verses 28 and 29, the warning is that Satan's attacks on us are going to bring into question what is right. He'll try to shift our beliefs incrementally, little by little, making us doubt something about Jesus that well, it seems a little bit insignificant. And yet we'll shift because we make that change there. It's been said that the way to learn how to spot a forgery is to know the authentic inside out. The better we know the real thing, the more obvious it is when we come across a fake. And so we must continue to get to know Jesus better. We must ignore the criticism that we're not up to date with the times. We must cling to the original Jesus, for only in him is eternal life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, that you love us so much that your concern for us through the shepherds you put over us so that we won't wander, that we won't stray from the truth that you have revealed to us in the gospel. We thank you so much for Jesus that he, he, he was incarnated. He, he took on flesh so that we could understand who you are, that we could know how to live, that he did what was necessary so that we could be back in relationship with you. We recognise it's so easy to be swayed by our society to start thinking there are, there are things in the Bible that, that just, well, they seem a bit hard to be true. Help us to understand what you have revealed and not shift from it. Help us to trust in the means that you've provided for us in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.